This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Grammy-nominated American composer Missy Mazzoli has been deemed Brooklyn's post-millennial Mozart by Time Out New York. Her boundary-defying works have been performed by ensembles all over the world, and in 2018, she became one of the first two women to receive a commission from the Metropolitan Opera, a distinction she does not take lightly. People always ask me, like, oh, how does it feel to be one of the first women commissioned at the Met? It's the thing I'm most proud of in life, and it's a literal dream come true, but it only feels good if I'm not the last woman. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. When you're composing, is it a thunderbolt of creativity? And what happens if you're on the subway and and you get an idea? Do you scramble for your phone and write yourself a note right away? Yeah, it's funny because I was um, I had friends over for dinner last night and we were playing this party game where you go onto your phone and you just randomly read a note to yourself out of context. And they're writers. And so all of our notes to ourselves were hilarious. It was like, Faster melody, question mark, Chicago or not, maybe folk reference. It's like all these these, these like fragments of ideas and, and theirs were even funnier. It was like barbecue attended by pigs, you know, all this, like just random ideas for stories. <laughs> so, yeah, sure. Like so, sometimes an idea will come to me like like that. And I, and I try to write every day so that my brain, even when I'm not sitting at my desk and not sitting at the piano, that my brain is doing some of the work for me. So that means, yeah, sure. I'm like 
I'll be sitting on the subway and my brain will like solve a problem in the piece and then I'll, I'll write it down. Um, but general, that's like rare, I have to admit. I mean, most of the time I have this set amount of time that I'm sitting at my desk that I'm writing. And again, it is a switch that I'm turning on and off. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting to sit here. I'm working on this opera for the Met right now and I am so tired and my hair looks crazy and I'm wearing a sweatsuit. And like, I just, it's like, it's just, it's so exhausting. So you need to, I, I will speak for myself. I need to be able to step away from it and get my brain out of it as well. And what happens if you sit down to write and nothing comes out? I mean, is writer's block a thing? Yeah, wow. It really varies and it's still very mysterious. I used to struggle a lot with writer's block, but now I've developed strategies to to get around it and to like work myself free of it. How exactly? How do you escape that? Well, one thing is just, um, you know, skipping ahead to another point in the piece, you know, and so you're not writing, not trying to think of what comes next, what comes next, but to like just, okay, what's going to happen a minute later or 10 minutes later. Um, another thing is to go back and revise something that you've already written or an earlier part of the piece and just to get yourself started. And I have things that I say to myself, like um, I think a good question to ask yourself when you're really stuck is like, what is the simplest thing I could do here? And not that you're necessarily going to do that, but like just to know that like a, sometimes a simple solution is all you need. And um even just to know what what that looks like, like what the, the will usually set you free. And they're like, this is this is one version of something I could do or I could do something better. So it's it's things like that. It's a combination of strategies and then like mantras that that like kind of re reorient your way of thinking in that moment. And when it's working for you and you're writing, how much of that process is just creativity and waiting for inspiration? And how much of it is just working on the math, figuring out the structure and, and, and the problems inherent to that particular piece? Um, you know, it's hard to say, like, how much is one thing or the other, because it's all part of the same process for me. Like, I feel like um, my and it's all it is personal. It's like my brain works in like a very mathematical way, you know, and I like I, I can be at my most creative and my most insane and daring um, when I'm working with, with numbers and like with, with a structure that I've built that makes sense to me. Um, and that sounds, always sounds kind of boring, but it actually, it really is a way for me to set myself free, um, and to not repeat myself, which is very important to me. So I'm constantly going back and forth. You know, I feel like I need to be able to conceive of a piece or a section of a piece in sort of in one burst um, one thought and sometimes I'll write it out on like one piece of paper or something. And then it's about refining and refining and making more details. Mm -hmm. I've been fortunate to play a lot of contemporary music written by a diverse group of composers. Yet still, when I think about who a composer is, I'm envisioning Mozart or Beethoven. I'm not proud of that, but those are the images that pop into my head. Is it hard that these archetypes still come to mind? And did it make it difficult for you to envision being a composer? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. And that was a huge hurdle to get over early in, in my life. Because you don't, it's not just that you, most composers are, you know, that you encounter are male, or most composers are dead, or most composers are white. It's like that they all are. 
And when we talk about representation, you know, the first hurdle is just having any anyone who is not that, you know, having people of color, having women, um, having non-binary people who are just visible at all. And and I think for for young people, you have to see it in order to imagine yourself going in that direction. It's that simple. You know, I think that the idea of having a role model and a mentor is extremely important and not just important, but necessary in order to be able to envision yourself pursuing a career. And I struggled a lot before I met people like Meredith Monk, Julia Wolf, um, Tanya Leone. You know, these were women, our women who um, shared some of my experience just by virtue of being women in the world. And um we're having these amazing careers as as composers. And so it wasn't until I met them that I really felt like I had a future in this industry. And, and I think we need to get out of this idea that like, that is what a composer looks like, because it's not an old idea. It's not an idea that is going away as quickly as it needs to. Um, you know, still, when you look at the people who are getting most of the big awards and funding and the big commissions. I mean, they still look like, <laughs> you know, that, that idea, they're, they're not dead, you know, but like, um, you know, like that they're the people, they look like are a very old fashioned idea of a composer. So, and that they're white men. So, um, and very deserving white men, you know, but when it's all that, it's, it's a problem and it's not reflecting what our society actually looks like. So, um, yeah, I just I think that a lot of my work and my activism in music has been centered around providing mentorship for young female and non-binary and gender non-conforming composers and also finding them when they're really young and are either teens and are looking for that kind of role model. Well, you've become such an amazing role model to so many young composers. Where do you find the time and the inspiration to advocate for others? It, to me, it's not it's not optional. Like it's it's essential. Like my success as a composer only makes sense to me if the next generation suffers a little less. And so we can all these successes that we have, we can open the door and bring in a, lo a little army of young female and non-binary composers who are can be the next ones in line for those opportunities. People always ask me like, oh, how does it feel to be one of the first women commissioned at the Met? And it's like, the thing I'm most proud of in life, and it's a literal dream come true, but it only feels good if I'm not the last woman. If there's like a steady stream of new commissions for women from here on out. So how do we make that happen? You know, and for me, the answer is to provide mentorship and to provide resources for young women when they're at the age when you decide to become a professional musician, which for all of us is like in our teens at the latest, like in order to have a shot. I'm not saying this is the way it should be, but the way it is in America and in the world, it's like to have a shot at being a professional, you have to start super young. So I wanted to catch them at that age. When you were in school training to be a composer, you were in classes at Boston University and at Yale, both with very small percentage female composers in the class. Did you think at the time that this would be different when you got out in the real world and this was just like a college thing? No. <laughs> Because like I looked, I you know I was paying attention to the programming at the New York Film, the the Boston Symphony, and then you know like all over the world, and women were woefully under underrepresented. So I saw it as a systemic problem, and I I think that the problem you know in school was that like I didn't see enough people 
taking responsibility for looking at the system and figuring out where it breaks down for people who are not white men? You know, is it that women and people of color aren't applying to study composition at Yale or something? Or is it that they're applying and not getting in? Um, if they're not applying, like that's really disturbing to me too. And so how can we change the process to be more inviting? But the answer was always like, oh, well, we can't accept more more women because they just don't apply. And it's like, doesn't, doesn't that make you upset that something in your program is unwelcoming to 51% of the population? Like I just... Um, so yeah, so I, I I don't it didn't seem like a localized problem. It felt like something systemic that I was gonna have to deal with for the rest of my life, but I felt uniquely empowered to deal with it, having lived through and having subsequently having lived through this shift of Me Too and where there was finally a platform um, and a language with which to describe these issues. And do you think the landscape has changed? Sure. But like until administrations are more diverse, like we're not going to see a big shift in um, in programming, you know, until right. there, there are women and people of color at the helm um, or in, in, peace, in places of great power and curatorial power, then I don't think that um, things are going to, we're not going to see a huge shift. But yes, you know, I, I also want to applaud these organizations that I love who are really making progress. I, I'm just very impatient and I want everything to happen now. I want everything to change a lot. <laughs> so um, it's never going to move fast enough for me. Um, but yes, things are changing. Yes, not fast enough for me, but I don't think it'll ever move fast enough for me. You're from a small town in Pennsylvania and neither of your parents were musicians. How did you even get the idea that composing was a thing that you could do? I mean, I, my parents had a piano in our house. Um, they got on a flea market and I just loved it. So we got that when I was seven and I just fell in love with it. And I started writing music right away. Um, and I knew that music was going to be my life. I just, I just was in love with classical music. And I don't know, I don't know where that came from at all. Um, but I just listened to it on the radio and play as much of it as I could and, um, I was like, this is going to be my life, but okay, I'm not going to be a pianist. <laughs> and I have all these other interests too. Like even at a young age, I was really interested in all these other things. So composing sort of checks all those boxes and then it allows you to do all sorts of stuff under the umbrella of being a composer. What age are we talking about? Like I decided I was going to be a composer when I was about 10. Um, yeah, because I that's just love I love the music. No, I just I just love the music, and I was like, okay, whatever Beethoven's job was, I want to do that. And my piano teacher was like, these are composers. This is what they do. They write music, and I was like, that's what I want to do. And I just became really fixated. But I don't like I said, I was crazy. Like I, I was really like a single-minded sort of fixated, obsessive kid, which is not always fun, but led to a career doing this very niche obsessive thing, <laughs> and. I was just like, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> so you started really young, but was there a point where you got really serious about it? I was always really serious about it. I was always like, you know, making, I would make records like they were, they were cassette tapes. You know, I would like make albums and of my music and all piano stuff that I would play and I would get people to record it. Like I was very, very serious about it. Um, and yeah. It's funny because people always ask me, like, don't you ever just write stuff for fun? I'm like, well, everything I write is fun. 
It's always fun. This job is extremely fun when I'm able to just spend time writing. I don't think like sitting down and being like, I'm going to write an opera or I'm going to write an orchestra piece is less fun than just like noodling around on the piano. Right. I'm curious, when you compose a piece, it's a permanent artifact of that time. Do you ever look back on the style of your early works with the same kind of dread one might feel when they come across an old picture of themselves, like wearing acid wash jeans from the from the 90s? Well, okay, acid wash jeans are totally back in style. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. So I feel like I'm writing one big piece. You know, I feel like every piece pushes me into the next piece. So even in those early pieces, I can see the seeds of what I'm writing now. And whether it's like an obsession with a certain kind of harmony or rhythm or a certain kind of texture or experimentation in one direction or the other. And so I, I don't feel like I've really changed my style, even from when I was a kid. Like, it's just an evolution. Um, now, someone hearing the music would definitely think that I have, you know. But um, I think that at its core, I've been, uh, I've been kind of on one journey. So it doesn't, I, you know, there's stuff that I wouldn't, there's not a lot of stuff from the early, early years that gets programmed, but I'm still, it's still close to my heart. And during this evolution, was your style always ever present or was there a period when you struggled to find your voice? Yeah, I think early on everyone struggles and I still have days when I feel like I don't remember how music goes. And, you know, and I call, I call my friend Bill Bertel, who's a great composer, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, I forget how music goes. He's like, okay, me too. Let's talk about it, you know? And so, um, but there's days when it just like, it's like things don't work and I'll, I'll play notes that I think should go together. And I'm just like, why isn't this working? I don't understand. And, um, but yeah, but in general, like I feel, um, I know, I know what I, what I like and the kind of music that I like. And I'm, I'm less sort of worried about other people liking it. You know, I, I'm just, I, I'm able now at the age of 41 to like write what's in my heart and to write what I feel is true and, and to just trust that someone out there will find something in it if I'm just honest with myself. Does the process of composing force you to be introspective so much so that it's almost like a form of therapy? Yeah. I was just talking to my boyfriend the other day about how like, um, you know, I was just in Oslo doing this opera. And so we're in rehearsals all like, you know, 10 hours a day. And like, it, there's no time to really write. And I, by the time I got back, I was really um, almost depressed. I was just like, I need to be writing something. And as soon as I started working on the the Met opera again, I was like, oh, I feel like I've straightened myself out. Like I feel much calmer and I'm able to process the data of the world when I'm writing. And I've always felt that way. I think that um, there's something therapeutic about it being the same sort of process that I experienced when I was a kid, you know, so like sitting down, like I'm sitting at, I have my piano here and like my desk here. And like, it's literally the same setup that I had when I was writing music when I was 10. And there's something very calming and, and affirming about just kind of going back to the same thing every day. And I'm sure for you, it's a similar thing. Like when you practice, like we, you've been doing this, like probably every day, your whole life for most of your life. And there's something in me that needs to make stuff. I need to be creating things. So if I'm not doing that, I, I feel, it feels wrong. 
It almost feels like time is not passing at, in, at the appropriate rate. It, feel, it just feel, I just feel like stuffed up. Um, and I've heard people describe this before. I mean, even Bjork says like when she has a day where she's not writing music, she goes a little bit funny. <laughs> it is a very Bjork way to describe it. And I'm like, I heard her say that. I was like, I totally know what you mean. You know, it's that's the best reasoning for writing every day. It's just for me, it's just to like feel like myself. Well, you're a very busy composer, but you're also a performer, and you founded Victoire, which is an electroacoustic band. Did a lot of thought go into calling it a band instead of an ensemble? Is there a difference? Well, yes and no. I mean, like, when I started that band, my goal was to combine the best aspects of being in a, in a, tra- in a touring um, rock band or a touring band with the best aspects of being in a highly virtuosic chamber ensemble. I had all these friends who were in bands who were touring around and it seemed fun. You know, they were rehearsing all, you know, every week. They were hanging out with their friends. They were making music together. Um, they were traveling around the world. They were performing for different audiences all the time. They were making records. And on the other side, like on the more, I guess, classical side, you know, there, there's a certain, uh, there's a beauty to that complexity. And um, I, I like writing for people who are very good at their instruments. So, um I, I just wanted to combine the, all, the best of all possible worlds. And and I think the decision to call it a band was really intentional. You know, like I found like when I tell people I'm a composer, it's like their eyes sort of glaze over and they're like, I don't understand what that means. Um, and, oh, that's probably weird. And all these barriers go up. But when I say I'm in a band, um, they're like, cool. You know, and they, it's, there's an understanding that I'm going to stand in front of them and play music that I wrote. And their their ears are wide open and they're much more open to experimental, unexpected sounds because this, the paradigm is familiar. The situation is familiar. And they're like, oh, yeah, my brother's in a band and he's he's in a, an experimental improv band. And I'm like, is it, there's like there's like a they're, they're able to relate to you eat much easier. Yeah. You know, it's clear that we think of pop and rock composers different than we do classical. Like nobody wants to hear anybody other than Billy Joel saying Piano Man. But it's totally normal for a composer of a classical piece to write it and then never play it and hand it off to someone else to interpret. Um, mm-hmm. Do you enjoy performing your own works as much as you do listening to others play them? Well, it's a tough question. Like, I love performing. I only play piano. So if I were only writing for myself, it, I, that would get very old very fast. Um, I will always perform. And I think I need that kind of release in my life. And because there's a certain kind of um, feedback loop that is complete when you stand in front of people, you know, get nervous, play your stuff, and then it's done. And then you've like, and then they, the audience receives it. And there's a sort of like completing of a cycle that is really beautiful there that is I wouldn't say you don't get as just as a composer sitting in the audience or sitting in the wings, but it's a different kind of feeling. And I think I need the release of performing for people as well. Yeah, that must be a very different experience than sitting in like Carnegie Hall as an orchestra is playing your piece and then coming up on stage. It's crazy. It's a crazy rush to be out there in front of all these dozens and dozens of people who have just played your music and a huge crowd in a, in a story building like Carnegie Hall. I mean, that's it's incredible like during the performance is a very out of body experience. You know, it's like 
you I feel I like sweat in weird places. <laughs> like I, <laughs> you know, I I get nervous about bowing without falling. Like they're really like crazy thoughts will like go through your head. I've never fallen, by the way. It's not like a a, a legit fear. <laughs> um, but like, you know, it's just like, oh, I hope this goes well. And you're you're kind of like willing the orchestra to just just keep going and to and to stay together and to like, you know, get through it and to do it well. Um, but there's nothing you can do. So it's a very strange, it's a very strange feeling. Um, and on the other side, there's, there's a total rush with like when I'm playing piano or when I'm playing with my band, but I'm, I have a duo with Jennifer Coe, the violinist. And so we perform a duo show a lot. So like when we're performing together, it's just a different kind of rush. It's a different kind of release. Um, and again, you can't really compare the two. Like they're, they're very, they're very different feelings. And I feel like I need both in my life. Right. Your compositions embrace so many different genres of music and you're so comfortable in them. It seems like you don't elevate one genre over another. How do you balance the immediacy of like a pop tune with the complicated nature of some of your compositions? Um, tough question. Like, as you say, I've never found the hierarchy in the, in the two, whether or not you're elevating classical music or music by dead people or whether you're elevating like pop music or it's just like it doesn't mean anything you know and I think a lot of the ways that we elevate usually it's classical music are really just elitist and one of my goals as a composer is to to not play into that and the music itself is not elitist the music itself is for everybody and I think it's frustrating to me when the world sort of makes it seem like it's the music music for a few when people feel like because they don't like something or they don't like a particular opera, they, that it's because they don't have the education to like that piece or they don't know enough to really get that piece. And it could be that the piece just sucks. It could be that you don't like it. It could be that it's not your thing, you know, the same way that we talk about movies. Like some people love horror movies, some people hate them. Like, and that's totally fine. That's okay. And it's, but I just think it's weird in our, our talking about it that, um, you know, that we don't talk about classical music that way. And and we don't encourage people to just come in fresh, maybe knowing nothing about the piece or the history or whatever. And to, you can still have a, an opinion and you will, and you should have an opinion about whether or not you like it. Because the thing is like, it, like, I, I just feel like it's, that's a real barrier for young people to get into the music because they feel like they need, you know, three degrees in music and, um, you know, a trust fund in order to like access this, this music. It's just, it's not true. That's refreshing to hear you say. <laughs> um, I have two daughters. They're grown now, but when they were younger, my wife and I would take them to the Upper East Side to a ballet class. And in each one of these ballet classes, there was a pianist in the corner playing as these little girls danced. I read that one of your early jobs in Manhattan was being that very pianist for an Upper East Side ballet class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, is that true? Yes. What was that experience like? Oh, my God. I mean, so <laughs> it was, um, yeah, that was the, the year that I moved to New York, 2006. I had um, like seven jobs at the same time. So I was working in a grocery store was one of them. I was accompanying dance classes was another one. I was doing copying work. I was um, like teaching random classes at Yale where I just graduated. So I was just like all over the place and and still had no money. It was this really weird 
It's a really weird combination of like seven jobs and still like not making enough to survive. One of them was playing piano and it was Saturday and Sunday mornings for like baby ballet classes, like mommy and me, little kid ballet classes. And it was fun. They were really cute. But it, I was after like six months, I was like, I hate this actually. <laughs> like, I can't do this anymore. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.